The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Chapter 1. The Rebirth of Caste. The slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. W.E.B. Dubois, The Black Reconstruction in America. For more than 200 years, scholars have written about the illusory nature of the Emancipation Proclamation. President Abraham Lincoln issued a declaration purporting to free slaves held in southern Confederate states, but not a single black slave was actually free to walk away from a master in those states as a result. A civil war had to be won first, hundreds of thousands of lives lost, and then, only then, were slaves across the South set free. Even that freedom proved illusory, though. As W.E.B. Dubois eloquently reminds us, former slaves had a brief moment in the sun before they were returned to a status akin to slavery. Constitutional amendments guaranteeing African Americans equal protection of the laws and the right to vote proved as impotent as the Emancipation Proclamation once a white backlash against Reconstruction gained steam. Black people found themselves yet again powerless and relegated to convict leasing camps that were, in many ways, worse than slavery. Sunshine gave way to darkness, and the Jim Crow system of segregation emerged, a system that put black people nearly back where they began, in a subordinate racial caste. Few find it surprising that Jim Crow arose following the collapse of slavery. The development is described in history books as a regrettable but predictable given the virulent racism that gripped the South and the political dynamics of the time. What is remarkable is that hardly anyone seems to imagine that similar political dynamics may have produced another caste system in the years following the collapse of Jim Crow, one that exists today. The story that is told during Black History Month is one of triumph. The system of racial caste is officially dead and buried. Suggestions to the contrary are frequently met with shocked disbelief. The standard reply is, how can you say that a racial caste system exists today? Just look at Barack Obama. Just look at Oprah Winfrey. The fact that some African Americans have experienced great success in recent years does not mean that something akin to a racial caste system no longer exists. No caste system in the United States has ever governed all black people. There have always been free blacks and black success stories, even during slavery and Jim Crow. The superlative nature of individual black achievement today in formerly white domains is a good indicator that Jim Crow is dead, but it does not necessarily mean the end of racial caste. If history is any guide, it may have simply taken a different form. Any candid observer of American racial history must acknowledge that racism is highly adaptable. The rules and reasons the political system employs to enforce status relations of any kind, including racial hierarchy, evolve and change as they are challenged. The valiant efforts to abolish slavery and Jim Crow and to achieve greater racial equality have brought about significant changes in the legal framework of American society, new rules of the game, so to speak. These new rules have been justified by new rhetoric, new language, and a new social consensus, while producing many of the same results. This dynamic, which legal scholar Riva Siegel has dubbed preservation through transformation, is the process through which white privilege is maintained uh, though the rules and rhetoric change. This process, though difficult to recognize at any given moment, is easier to see in retrospect. Since the nation's founding, African Americans repeatedly have been controlled through institutions such as slavery and Jim Crow, which appear to die, but then are reborn in a new form, tailored to the needs and constraints of the time. As described in the pages that follow, there's a certain pattern to this cycle. Following the collapse of each system of control, 
there has been a period of confusion, transition, in which those who are most committed to racial hierarchy search for new means to achieve their goals within the rules of the game as currently defined. It is during this period of uncertainty that the backlash intensifies and a new form of racialized social control begins to take hold. The adoption of the new system of control is never inevitable, but to date it has never been avoided. The most ardent proponents of racial hierarchy have consistently succeeded in implementing a new racial caste system by triggering a collapse of resistance across the political spectrum. This feat has been achieved largely by appealing to the racism and vulnerability of lower-class whites, a group of people who are understandably eager to ensure that they never find themselves trapped at the bottom of the American hierarchy. The emergence of each new system of control may seem sudden, but history shows that the seeds are planted long before each new institution begins to grow. For example, although it is common to think of the Jim Crow regime following immediately on the heels of Reconstruction, the truth is more complicated, and while it is generally believed that the backlash against the civil rights movement is defined primarily by the rollback of affirmative action and the undermining of federal civil rights legislation by a hostile judiciary, the seeds of the new system of control, mass car incarceration, were planted during the civil rights movement itself, when it became clear that the old caste system was crumbling and a new one would have to take its place. With each reincarnation of racial caste, the new system, as sociologist Loic Wakankwat puts it, is less total, less capable of encompassing and controlling the entire race. However, any notion that this evolution reflects some kind of linear progress would be misguided, for it is not at all obvious that it would be better to be incarcerated for life for a minor drug offense than to live with one's family earning an honest living under the Jim Crow regime, notwithstanding the ever-present threat of the Klan. Moreover, as the systems of control have evolved, they have become perfected, arguably more resilient to challenge, and thus capable of enduring for generations to come. The story of the political and economic underpinnings of the nation's founding sheds some light on these recurring themes in our history and the reasons new ca racial caste systems continue to be born. The Birth of Slavery Back there before Jim Crow, before the invention of the Negro or the white man or the words and concepts to describe them, the colonial population consisted largely of a great mass of white and black bondsmen, who occupied roughly the same economic category and were treated with equal contempt by the lords of the plantations and legislatures. Curiously unconcerned about their color, these people worked together and relaxed together. Lerone Bennett, Jr. The concept of race is a relatively recent development. Only in the past few centuries, owing largely to European imperialism, have the world's people been classified along racial lines. Here in America, the idea of race emerged as a means of reconciling chattel slavery, as well as the extermination of American Indians, with the ideals of freedom preached by whites in the new colonies. In the early colonial period, when settlements be remained relatively small, indentured servitude was the dominant means of securing cheap labor. Under this system, whites and blacks struggled to survive against a common enemy, what historian Laroon Bennett Jr. describes as the big planter apparatus and a social system that legalized terror against black and white bondsmen. Initially, blacks brought to this country were not all enslaved. Many were treated as indentured servants. As plantation farming expanded, particularly tobacco and cotton farming, demand increased greatly for both labor and land. The demand for land was, let, was met by invading and conquering larger and larger swaths of territory. 
American Indians became a growing impediment to white European progress, and during this period, the images of American Indians promoted in books, newspapers, and magazines became increasingly negative. As sociologists Keith Kiltley and Eric Swank have observed, eliminating savages is less of a moral problem than eliminating human beings, and therefore American Indians came to be understood as a lesser race, uncivilized savages, thus providing a justification for the extermination of the native peoples. The growing demand for labor on plantations was met through slavery. American Indians were considered unsuitable as slaves, largely because native tribes were clearly in a position to fight back. The fear of raids by Indian tribes led plantation owners to grasp for an alternative source of free labor. European immigrants were also deemed poor candidates for slavery, not because of their race, but rather because they were in short supply and enslavement would quite naturally interfere with voluntary immigration to the new colonies. Plantation owners thus viewed Africans, who were relatively powerless, as the ideal slaves. The systematic enslavement of Africans, the, remaining, the rearing of their children under bondage, um, emerged with all deliberate speed, quickened by events such as Bacon's Rebellion. Nathaniel Bacon was a white property owner in Jamestown, Virginia, who managed to unite slaves, indentured servants, and poor whites in a revolutionary effort to overthrow the planter elite. Although slaves clearly occupied the lowest position in the social hierarchy and suffered the most under the plantation system, the, the condition of indentured whites was barely better, and the majority of free whites lived in extreme poverty. As explained by historian Edmund Mug Morgan, the colonies like Virginia, in colonies like Virginia, the planter elite, with huge land grants, occupied a vastly superior position to workers of all colors. Southern colonies did not hesitate to invent ways to extend the terms of servitude, and the planter class accumulated uncultivated lands to restrict the options of free workers. The simmering resentment against the planter class created conditions that were ripe for revolt. Varying accounts of Bacon's rebe rebellion abound, but the basic facts are these. Bacon developed plans in 1675 to seize Native American lands in order to acquire more property for himself and others and nullify the threat of Indian raids. When the planter elite in Virginia refused to provide militia support for his scheme, Bacon retaliated, leaving an attack, leading an attack on the elite, their homes, and their property. He openly condemned the rich for their oppression of the poor and inspired an alliance of white and black bond laborers, as well as slaves, who demanded an end to their servitude. The attempted revolution was ended by force and false promises of amnesty. A number of the people who participated in the revolt were hanged. The events in Jamestown were alarming to the planter elite, who were deeply fearful of the multiracial alliance of bond workers and slaves. Word of Bacon's rebellion spread far and wide, and several more uprisings of a similar type followed. In an effort to protect their superior status and economic position, the planters shifted their strategy for maintaining dominance. They abandoned their heavy reliance on indentured servants in favor of the importation of more black slaves. Instead of importing English-speaking slaves from the West Indies, who were more likely to be familiar with European language and culture, many more slaves were shipped directly from Africa. These slaves would be far easier to control and far less likely to form alliances with poor whites. Fearful that such measures might not be sufficient to protect their interests, the planter class took an additional precautionary step, a step that would later come to be known as a racial bribe. Deliberately and strategically, the planter class extended special privileges to poor whites in an effort to drive a wedge between them and black slaves. 
white settlers were allowed greater access to Native American lands, white servants were allowed to police slaves through slave patrols and militias, and barriers were created so that free labor would not be placed in competition with slave labor. These measures effectively eliminated the risk of future alliances between black slaves and poor white slaves. Poor whites suddenly had a direct personal stake in the existence of a race-based system of slavery. Their own plight had not improved by much, but at least they were not slaves. Once the planter elite split the labor force, poor whites responded to the logic of their situation and sought ways to expand their racially privileged position. By the mid-1770s, the system of bond labor had been thoroughly transformed into a racial caste system pr predicated on slavery. The degraded status of Africans was justified on the ground that Negroes, like the Indians, were an uncivilized, lesser race, perhaps even more lacking in intelligence and laudable human qualities than the red-skinned natives. The notion of white supremacy rationalized the enslavement of Africans, even as whites endeavored to form a new nation based on the ideals of equality, liberty, and justice for all. Before democracy, chattel slavery in America was born. It may be impossible to overstate the significance of race in defining the basic structure of American society. The structure and content of the original Constitution was based largely on the effort to preserve a racial caste system, slavery, while at the same time affording political and economic rights to whites, especially propertied whites. The southern slaveholding colonies would agree to form a union only on the condition that the federal government would not be able to interfere with the right to own slaves. Northern white elites were sympathetic to the demand for their property rights to be respected, as they too wanted the Constitution to protect their property interests. As James Madison put it, the nation ought to be constituted to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. Consequently, the Constitution was designed so the federal government would be weak, not only in its relationship to a private property, but also in relationship to the rights of states to conduct their own affairs. The language of the Constitution itself was deliberately colorblind. The words slave or negro were never used. But the document was built upon a compromise regarding the prevailing racial caste system. Federalism, the division of power between the states and the federal government, was a device employed to protect the institution of slavery and the political power of slaveholding states. Even the method for determining proportional representation in Congress and identifying the winner of a presidential election, the Electoral College, were specifically developed with the interest of slaveholders in mind. Under the terms of our country's founding document, slaves were defined as three-fifths of a man, not a real whole human being. Upon this racist fiction rests the entire structure of American democracy. The Death of Slavery The history of racial caste in the United States would end with the Civil War if the idea of race and a racial difference had died when the institution of slavery was put to rest. But during the four centuries in which slavery flourished, the idea of race flourished as well. Indeed, the notion of racial difference, specifically the notion of white supremacy, proved far more durable than the institution that gave birth to it. White supremacy over time became a religion of sorts. Faith in the idea that people of the African race were bestial, that whites were inherently superior, and that slavery was in fact for blacks' own good, served to alleviate the white conscience and reconcile the tension between slavery and the democratic ideals espoused by whites in the so-called New World. There was no contradiction in the bold claim made by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal if Africans were not really people. 
racism operated as a deeply held belief system based on truths beyond question or doubt. This deep faith in white supremacy not only justified an economic and political system in which plantation owners acquired land and great wealth through the brutality, torture, and coercion of other human beings, it also endured, like most articles of faith, long after the historical circumstances that gave rise to the religion passed away. In Wachenquat's words, racial division was a consequence, not a precondition of slavery, but once it was instituted, it became detached from its initial function and acquired a social potency all its own. After the death of slavery, the idea of race lived on. One of the most compelling accounts of the post-emancipation period is The Strange Career of Jim Crow, written by C. Van Woodward in 1955. The book continues to be the focal point of study and debate by scholars, and was once described by Martin Luther King Jr. as the historical bible of the civil rights movement. As Woodward tells the story, the end of slavery created an extraordinary dilemma for southern white society. Without the labor of former slaves, the region's economy would surely collapse, and without the institution of slavery, there was no longer a formal mechanism for maintaining racial hierarchy and preventing amalgamation with a group of people considered intrinsically inferior and vile. This state of affairs produced a temporary anarchy and a state of mind bordering on hysteria, particularly among the planter elite. But even among poor whites, the collapse of slavery was a bitter pill. In the antebellum South, the lowliest white person at least possessed his or her white skin, a badge of superiority even over the most skilled slave or prosperous free African American. While Southern whites, poor and rich alike, were utterly outraged by emancipation, there was no obvious solution to the dilemma they faced. Following the Civil War, the economic and political infrastructure of the South was in shambles. Plantation owners were suddenly destitute, and state governments shackled by war debt were penniless. Large amounts of real estate and other property had been destroyed in the war, industry was disorganized, and hundreds of thousands of men had been killed or maimed. With all of this went the demoralizing effect of an unsuccessful war and the extraordinary challenges associated with rebuilding new state and local governments. Add to all this the sudden presence of four million newly free slaves, and the picture becomes even more complicated. Southern whites, Woodward explains, strongly believed that a new system of racial control was clearly required, but it was not immediately obvious what form it should take. Under slavery, the racial order was most effectively maintained by a large degree of contact between slave owners and slaves, thus maximizing opportunities for supervision and discipline and minimizing the potential for active resistance or rebellion. Strict separation of the races would have threatened slaveholders' immediate interests and was, in any event, wholly unnecessary as a means of creating social distance or establishing the inferior status of slaves. Following the Civil War, it was unclear what institutions, laws, or customs would be necessary to maintain white control now that slavery was gone. Nonetheless, as numerous historians have shown, the development of a new racial order became the consuming passion for most white Southerners. Rumors of a great insurrection terrified whites, and blacks increasingly came to be viewed as menacing and dangerous. In fact, the current stereotypes of black men as aggressive, unruly predators can be traced to this period, when whites feared that an angry mass of black men might rise up and attack them or rape their women. Equally worrisome was the state of the economy. Former slaves literally walked away from their plantations, causing panic and outrage among the plantation owners. Large numbers of former slaves roamed the highways in the early years after the war. Some converged on towns and cities, others joined the federal militia. 
Most white people believed African Americans lacked the proper motivation to work, prompting the provisional Southern legislatures to adopt the notorious Black Codes. As expressed by one Alabama planter, we have the power to pass stringent police laws to govern the Negroes. This is a blessing, for they must be controlled in some way or white people cannot live among them. While some of these codes were intended to establish systems of panage resembling slavery, others foreshadowed Jim Crow laws by prohibiting, among other things, interracial seating in the first-class sections of railroad cars and by segregating schools. Although the convict laws enacted during this period are rarely seen as part of the black codes, that is a mistake. As explained by historian William Cohen, the main person, purpose of the codes was to control the freedmen, and the question of how to handle convicted black lawbreakers was very much at the center of the control issue. Nine southern states adopted vagrancy laws, which essentially made it a criminal offense not to work and were applied selectively to blacks and eight of those states enacted convict laws, allowing for the hiring out of country prisoners to plantation owners and private companies. Prisoners were forced to work for little or no pay. One vagrancy act specifically provided that all free Negroes and mulattoes over the age of 18 must have written proof of a job at the beginning of every year. Those found with no lawful employment were deemed vagrants and convicted. Clearly, the purpose of the Black Codes in general, and the vagrancy laws in particular, was to establish another system of forced labor. In W.E.B. Dubois' words, the codes spoke for themselves. No open-minded student can read them without being convinced they meant nothing more or less than slavery and daily toil. Ultimately, the Black Codes were overturned, and a slew of federal civil rights legislation protecting the newly freed slaves was passed during the relatively brief but extraordinary period, period of Black advancement known as the Reconstruction Era. The impressive legislative achievements of this period include the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, bestowing full citizenship upon African Americans, the 14th Amendment, prohibiting, slaves, prohibiting states from denying citizens due process and equal protection of the laws, the 15th Amendment, providing that the right to vote should not be denied on account of race, and the Ku Klux Klan Acts, which, among other things, declared interference with voting a federal offense, and the violent infringement of a civil rights and the violent infringement of civil rights a crime. The new legislation also provided for federal supervision of voting and authorized the president to send the army and suspend the writ of habeas corpus in districts declared to be in a state of insurrection against the federal government. In addition to federal civil rights legislation, the Reconstruction Era brought the expansion of the Freedmen's Bureau, the agency charged with the responsibility of providing food, clothing, fuel, and other forms of assistance to destitute former slaves. A public education system emerged in the South, which afforded many blacks and poor whites their first opportunity to learn to read and write. While the Reconstruction era was fraught with corruption and arguably doomed by the lack of land reform, the sweeping economic and political developments in that period did appear, at least for a time, to have the potential to seriously undermine, if not completely eradicate, the racial caste system in the South. With the protection of federal troops, African Americans began to vote in large numbers and seize control in some areas of the, legal political, of the local political apparatus. Literacy rates climbed, and educated blacks began to populate legislatures, open schools, and initiate successful businesses. In 1867, at the dawn of the Reconstruction Era, no black men held political office in the South. 
Yet three years later, at least 15% of all Southern elected officials were black. This is particularly extraordinary in light of the fact that 15 years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the high watermark of the civil rights movement, fewer than 8% of all Southern elected officials were black. At that same time, however, many of the new civil rights laws were proving largely symbolic. Notably absent from the 15th Amendment, for example, was language prohibiting the states from imposing educational, residential, or other qualifications for voting, thus leaving the door open to the states to impose poll taxes, literacy tests, and other devices to prevent blacks from voting. Other laws revealed themselves as more an assertion of principle than direct federal intervention into Southern affairs. Because enforcement required African Americans to take their cases to federal courts, a costly and time-consuming procedure that was a practical impossibility for the vast majority of those who had claims. Most blacks were too poor to sue to enforce their civil rights, and no organization like the NAACP yet existed to spread the risks and costs of litigation. Moreover, the threat of violence often deterred blacks from pressing legitimate claims, making the civil rights of former slaves largely illusory existing on paper, but really to be found in real life. Meanwhile, the separation of the races had begun to emerge as a comprehensive pattern throughout the South, driven in a large part by the rhetoric of the planter elite, who hoped to re-establish a system of control that would ensure a low-paid submissive labor force. Racial segregation had actually begun years earlier in the North as an effort to prevent race mixing and preserve racial hierarchy following the abolition of Northern slavery. It had never developed, however, into a comprehensive system, operating instead largely as a matter of custom, enforced with varying degrees of consistency. Even among those most hostile to Reconstruction, few would have predicted that racial segregation would soon evolve into a new racial caste system, as stunningly comprehensive and repressive as the one that came to be known simply as Jim Crow. The Birth of Jim Crow the backlash against the gains of African Americans in the Reconstruction era was swift and severe. As African Americans obtained political power and began the long march toward greater social and economic equality, whites reacted with panic and outrage. Southern conservatives vowed to reverse Reconstruction and sought the abolition of the Freedmen's Bureau and all political instrumentalities designed to secure Negro supremacy. Their campaign to redeem the South was reinforced by a resurgent Ku Klux Klan, which fought a terrorist campaign against the Reconstruction governments and local leaders, complete with bombings, lynchings, and mob violence. The terrorist campaign proved highly successful. Redemption resulted in the withdrawal of federal troops from the South and the effective abandonment of African Americans and all those who had fought for or supported an egalitarian racial order. The federal government no longer made any effort to enforce civil rights legislation, and funding for the Freedmen's Bureau was slashed to such a degree that the agency became virtually defunct. Once again, vagrancy laws and other laws defining activities such as mischief and insulting gestures as crimes were enforced vigorously against blacks. The aggressive enforcement of these criminal offenses opened up an enormous market for convict leasing, in which prisoners were contracted out as laborers to the highest private bidder. Douglas Blackman, in Slavery by Another Name, describes how tens of thousands of African Americans were arbitrarily arrested during this period, many of them hit with court costs and fines, which had to be worked off in order to secure their release. With no means to pay off their debts, prisoners were sold as forced laborers to lumber camps, brickyards, railroads, farms, plantations, and dozens of 
corporations throughout the South. Death rates were shockingly high, for the private contractors had no interest in the health and well-being of their laborers, unlike the earlier slave owners who needed their slaves, at a minimum, to be healthy enough to survive hard labor. Laborers were subject to almost continual lashing by long horse whips, and those who collapsed due to injuries or exhaustion were often left to die. Convicts had no meaningful legal rights at this time, and no effective redress. They were understood quite literally to be slaves of the state. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution had abolished slavery, but allowed one major exception. Slavery remained appropriate as punishment for a crime. In a landmark decision by the Virginia Supreme Court, Ruffin v. Commonwealth, um, issued at the height of Southern Redemption, the court put to rest any notion that convicts were legal legally distinguishable from slaves. For a time during his service in the penitentiary, he is in a state of penal servitude to the state. He has, as a consequence of his crime, not only forfeited his liberty, but all his personal rights except for those which the law, in its humanity, accords to him. He is, for the time being, a slave of the state. He is a civil civilitier mortis, and his estate, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man. The state of Mississippi eventually moved from hiring convict labor to organizing its own convict labor camp, known as Parchman Farm. It was not alone. During the decade following redemption, the convict population grew ten times faster than the general population. Prisoners became younger and blacker, and the length of their sentences soared. It was the nation's first prison boom, and, as they are today, the prisoners were disproportionately black. After a brief period of progress during Reconstruction, African Americans found themselves once again virtually defenseless. The criminal justice system was strategically employed to force African Americans back into a system of extreme repression and control, a tactic that would continue to prove successful for generations to come. Even as conflict leasing faded away, strategic forms of exploitation and repression emerged anew. As Blackwing notes, the apparent demise of leasing prisoners seemed a harbinger of a new day, but the harsher reality of the South was that the new post-Civil War neo-slavery was evolving, not disappearing. Redemption marked a turning point in the quest by dominant whites for a new racial equilibrium, a racial order that would protect their economic, political, and social interests in a world without slavery. Yet a clear consensus among whites what, about what the new racial order should be was still lacking. The redeemers who overthrew the re Reconstruction were inclined to retain such segregation practices as had already emerged, but they displayed no apparent disposition to expand or universalize the system. Three alternative philosophies of race relations were put forward to compete for the region's support, all of which rejected the doctrines of extreme racism espoused by some redeemers, liberalism, conservatism, and radicalism. The liberal philosophy of race relations emphasized the stigma of segregation and the hypocrisy of a government that celebrates freedom and equality yet denies both on account of race. This philosophy, born in the North, never gained much traction among Southern whites or blacks. The conservative philosophy, by contrast, attracted wide support and was implemented in various contexts over a considerable period of time. Conservatives blamed liberals for pushing blacks ahead of their proper station in life and placing blacks in positions they were unprepared to fill, a circumstance that had allegedly contributed to their downfall. 
They warned blacks that some redeemers were not satisfied with having decimated Reconstruction and were prepared to wage an aggressive war against blacks throughout the South. With some success, conservatives reached out to African-American voters, reminding them that they had something to lose as well as gain, and that the liberals' preoccupation with political and economic equality presented the danger of losing all that blacks had so far gained. The radical philosophy offered for many African-Americans the most promise. It was predicated on a searing critique of large corporations, particularly railroads, and the wealthy elite in the North and South. The radicals of the late 19th century, who later formed the Populist Party, viewed the privileged classes as conspiring to keep poor whites and blacks locked into a subordinate political and economic position. For many African-American voters, the populist approach was preferable to the paternalism of liberals. Populists preached an equalitarianism of want and property, the kinship of a common grievance and the common oppressor. As described by Tom Watson, a prominent populist leader, in a speech advocating a union between black and white farmers, you are kept apart that you may be separately fleeced of your earnings. You are made to hate each other, because upon that hatred is rested the keystone of the arch of financial despotism that enslaves you both. You were deceived and blinded that you may not see how this race antagonism perpetuates a monetary system, which beggars both. In an effort to demonstrate their commitment to a genuinely multiracial working class movement against white elites, the populists made strides toward racial integration, a symbol of their commitment to class-based unity. African Americans throughout the South responded with great hope and enthusiasm, eager to be true partners in a struggle for social justice. According to Woodward, it is altogether probable that during the brief populist upheaval in the 90s, Negroes and Native whites achieved a greater greater comedy of mind and harmony, harmony of political purpose than ever before or since in the South. The challenges inherent in creating the alliance sought by the populace were formidable, as race prejudice ran the highest among the very white populations to which the populist appeal was specifically addressed, the depressed lower economic classes. Nevertheless, the populist movement initially enjoyed remarkable success in the South, fueled by a wave of discontent aroused by the severe agrarian depression of the 1880s and 1890s. The populists took direct aim at the conservatives, who were known as a compromising a party of privilege, and they achieved a stunning series of political victories throughout the region. Alarmed by the success of the populists and the apparent potency of the alliance between poor and working-class whites and African-Americans, the conservatives raised the cry of white supremacy and resorted to the tactics they had employed in their quest for redemption, including fraud, intimidation, bribery, and terror. Segregation laws were proposed as part of a deliberate effort to drive a wedge between poor whites and African Americans. These discriminatory barriers were designed to encourage lower class whites to retain a sense of superiority over blacks, making it far less likely that they would sustain interracial political alliances aimed at toppling the white elite. The laws were, in effect, another racial bribe. As William Julius Wilson has noted, as long as poor whites directed their hatred and frustration against the black competitor, the planters were relieved of class hostility directed against them. Indeed, in order to overcome the well-founded suspicions of poor and illiterate whites that they as well as blacks were in danger of losing the right to vote, the leaders of the movement pursued an aggressive campaign of white supremacy in every state prior to black disenfranchisement. 
Ultimately, the populists caved to the pressure and abandoned their former allies. While the populists movement was at the peak of zeal, Woodward observed, the two races had surprised each other and astonished their opponents by the harmony they achieved and the goodwill with which they cooperated. But when it became clear that the, cons that the conservatives would stop at nothing to decimate their alliance, the biracial partnership dissolved, and populist leaders realigned themselves with conservatives. Even Tom Watson, who had been among the most forceful advocates for an interracial alliance of farmers, concluded that populist principles could never be fully embraced by the South unless blacks were eliminated from politics. The agricultural depression, taken together with a series of faded reforms and broken political promises, had pyramided to a climax of social tensions. Dominant whites concluded that it was in their political and economic interest to scapegoat blacks, and permission to hate came from sources that had formally denied it, including northern liberals eager to reconcile with the South, southern conservatives who had once promised blacks protection from racial extremism, and populists who cast aside their dark-skinned allies when the partnership fell under siege. History seemed to repeat itself. Just as the white elite had successfully driven a wedge between poor whites and blacks following Bacon's rebellion by creating the institution of black slavery, another racial caste system was emerging nearly two centuries later, in part due to efforts by white elites to decimate a multiracial alliance of four people. By the turn of the 20th century, every state in the South had laws on the books that disenfranchised blacks and discriminated against them in virtually every sphere of life. Lending sanction to a racial ostracism that extended to schools, churches, housing, jobs, restrooms, hotels, restaurants, hospitals, orphanages, prisons, funeral homes, morgues, and cemeteries. Politicians competed with each other by proposing and passing ever more stringent, oppressive, and downright ridiculous legislation, such as laws specifically prohibiting blacks and whites from playing chess together. The public symbols and constant reminders of black subjugation were supported by whites across the political spectrum, though the plight of poor whites remained largely unchanged. For them, the racial bribe was primarily psychological. The new racial order, known as Jim Crow, a term apparently derived from a minstrel snow character, was regarded as the final settlement, the return to sanity, and the permanent system. Of course, the earlier system of racialized social control, slavery, had also been regarded as final, sane, and permanent by its supporters. Like the earlier system, Jim Crow seemed natural, and it bega became difficult to remember that alternative paths were not only available at one time, but nearly embraced. <laughs>